Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Psalms, chapter 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemies triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord God. Give light to my eyes and I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Thanks, Ellen. Not sure it was in the announcements, but Explore is at 1 p.m. today in the Micah Center here. It's going to be live if you want to learn more about the church and what we do and what we believe in. Um, I want you to know also that uh, on Tuesday, uh, the, the elders voted to close the COVID-19 relief fund. So Sunday, April 18th, the next Sunday will be the last day that you can give to it. You still can give to benevolence, and benevolence will still give to people who are struggling because of COVID. So it's not like we won't do anything anymore. But um, I just wanted you to know that um, since its inception in April of 2020, um, people have given more than $73,000 to that fund, and mo- most of that money has gone to help min- minority-majority churches um, as the primary recipients, both individuals in those churches and those churches themselves, and the ministers leading those churches. And I think it's made a really significant difference in a number of churches. So thanks so much for your generosity. It's been great to see, and I think it has been deeply appreciated by the people who've been the recipients of it. I also should tell you that the, um, the giving we did on Good Friday to um, help finish the, the roofing project for um, S.S. Morris um, AME Church, uh, we needed to raise 8000 We raised a little, I think either just under or just over 11000 So that money's going to go, then we're going to close it at the end of the week if you want to give to that. And um, so they're going to have enough, I think, to do that project. Um, so that's going to be great. Do I have any more? Yeah, that's a really great thing. Yeah, they, they're going to be so, so thrilled to be able to start that project. All right. Um, lastly, uh, at the end of the service, we do an Ask Me Anything portion. We call it the AMA. If you're at highpointchurch.org slash live, you can just type in a question, AMA, colon, whatever you want to ask, and we'll get to that there or in the monthly podcast where we focus on it. Um, if, uh, if, if I honestly could um, use uh, assistance, like, as, like my assistance for whatever I really wanted, it would be to choose all my clothing for me and to lay it out for me every week so I would never have to think about clothing again. I hate thinking about clothing. I hate shopping for clothing. I hate buying clothing. And I hate that people care about clothing. And I don't hate people who are in the fashion industry or who like clothing. I think people who do aesthetics things and like that, they're great. I just wish that was not a part of my life. I don't like spending any of my emotional energy or mental energy on such things. But I'm now 43 years old, and one of the things I've learned about life is you don't get to pick what you spend your emotional energy on in some ways. There are some things that are foisted upon you because I can't walk around naked. It's, it's considered unacceptable, and nobody would like that. And, um, and I had some inappropriate jokes I could have shared there. I, I'm growing in, uh, as a minister. Okay, uh, and um, <laughs> similarly, there are things in life that we have to deal with that we don't want to deal with. Um, for example, one of the things that's true about basically every human life is it's profoundly disappointing. You're going to have to deal with a lot of disappointment in your life. You're going to deal with a lot of pain in your life. You're going to deal with a lot of turmoil 
and things like that. And we, we wouldn't pick those. Like if we could have an assistant to deal with that stuff, we would almost all choose that. But you don't get to do that. You can't have an assistant to help you with your internal psychology and your, and your personal pain. That has not yet been invented, at least. Right? One of the things that I found out in pastoral ministry also um, is that people have to learn how to trust in the death and resurrection of Christ in such a way not as, not as only to participate in regeneration or justification, being forgiven of our sins and given the righteousness of Christ, but in a functional way, what we call sanctification, in a functioning way in their life so that they can actually experience the death blows that life gives while serving God, heart, soul, and mind, and then to rise again and again and again to experience what Ephesians calls the, res- the, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, that same power which is operative in the life of a Christian through the work of his Spirit, right? Because he says, Jesus said when he ascended into heaven, he would send a Spirit to not just be with us, but to be in us. There's a way in which we have to learn how to operate in a belief or a faith in the providential work of God the Father, to learn to walk as followers of Jesus and his disciples and believers in death and resurrection, and to operate in step with the Spirit, knowing that he's with us, and that the power that literally raised Jesus physically from death to life is operating in us so that we can functionally, before our physical death and being raised to life, being knocked down by life and being in the pit and to rise and to rise and to rise again and again. One of the things that I have, I have noticed in Christian ministry um, in the years I've been doing it is that there's virtually always more pain than you think. There's this old quote from the first century from Philo the Jew where he says, be kind to everyone for everybody fights a great battle, right? Um, a lot of people think like at a church like High Point where there's a lot of people that like wear nice clothes and they like have little middle-class jobs and people have been to college, a lot of them, and, and so on, that, that kind of thing. They're like, and people have nice little families and they send their little well-fed kids to children's ministry. They're like, there's not a lot of pain in this room or watching online, or wherever. Does that make sense? And that's false. There's a lot of pain in this room. In fact, for most people, there's a lot more pain than we even want to recognize ourselves. We have pain, like, blocked off in little places in our lives that we have shut down, because we're not even willing to accept how much pain we have, much less how much pain is around us, nor how much that means we are disappointed with how life has been turning out. And that that is a thing that's on our mind, and and it doesn't really work to Like, okay, that's what God is calling me to do. 
it was super clear that God led us directly to Marielle. Our first meeting of Marielle, and, and we had been kind of forewarned of that, but it was less energetic. One of the helpers, the interpreters with us, was trying to talk to her. And earlier, within you know, 10 minutes, she said she doesn't talk. She does not have any words that Chinese. They're grunts and growls. We chose to spend extra money to go visit the orphanage so that we had an idea of who she was. She had had very little care, no toys. Um, no books. Malnourished. Yep. Um, a lot of special needs kids within in cribs that were still in bed at four in the afternoon that you had a stench. Like after seeing where she had spent her life, they honest to goodness didn't know. She had not gotten medical care. Um, it was a matter of just a lot of special needs kids within four walls and surviving. God knew. We didn't, China didn't, um, but God knew. We brought her home the beginning of August and um, she got hearing aids in February. So she was over five years old at that point and hearing for the first time, hearing speech, trying to gain language at that point. When we came home, it was, it was a shocking change. Um, we had an almost five-year-old who um, didn't have any language, um, needed to be potty trained. Um, her balance and physical ability was um, so disadvantaged that she was kind of following her around like a toddler. I didn't think I could do it. It was uh, kind of the task before us. It just seemed so daunting and so overwhelming. Felt like I was just hanging on by a thread. I couldn't understand why he was allowing it to be so hard. Like I wasn't mad at God, I, I, I wasn't angry, but I, I kept crying out just why is this so hard? Like, we, we've been obedient during some of those really dark times. I would have the Book of Psalms on audio that I was just constantly listening to. And, and going, as David worked through it, on that crying out to the Lord, but not leaving myself in that pit of despair and, and rising back out of that with his strength. Do you still feel blessed? Do you still feel thankful when things don't feel so good? when it's not what people would say seems or feels like a blessing. We are to find joy and hope and blessing in all of those things um, and not rely on circumstantial happiness, but true hope and joy um, that's found in Christ. He's not gonna overcome or give you more than you can handle. Um, we're a testimony to that and that says he doesn't but it's sometimes a hard road, and that's something that we, we find the joy in that day to day. We, we see Christ's redemption story every day. Like, he is redeeming her. He has pulled her out of being an orphan to a loving family. He is renewing and changing her. He is renewing and changing us in that process. Um, like, it is truly a redemption story. It is not the fast, woo, like, it's all better now, but we daily are living and seeing um, God's redemption.
Last week, one of the things I said about rising out of the pit um, was that you have to cry out. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, if you don't cry out, then you don't cry out. You're not asking for help. You're not turning to God. You, you just have to do it, right? And this week, what I want to talk about is the fact that how you cry out actually materially matters. Like, it's an imp- a very important thing. Um, so when you look at Psalm 13 and you try to figure out, like, what is this psalm— when psalms like it tell us about crying out to God, um, this is how I could say it relatively simply, is that we're supposed to lament fully and in faith. We're supposed to lament fully and in faith, right? So just to clarify what lament is, right? Christians have been talking about it a lot right now, especially in relationship to— I'm trying to grapple with historical racial injustices and so on, and like terrible things that happen in the news and so on. without going into some of my thoughts about that, um, lament is essentially, it is a complaint to God that is not just about God. So it's not what the scriptures call a grumbling, right? Which is basically just a complaint at God and about God, but not really to him. We're not turning to him. We don't, we don't want an answer. We don't want help. We don't, right? He's the enemy in a grumble. That's one kind of complaint. Another kind of complaint is lament, which is where you're complaining. You're upset about something. It hurts. You don't like it, but you're complaining to God. So the person that you're complaining at is also the one you're appealing to. That is what a lament is. Does that make sense? And those two things together are really important. And so therefore, what that means is, is that you're not really lamenting if you're not lamenting. Right? Like, there has to be a complaint. The complaint can be rather lengthy. It can be really short, like in this passage, just a couple of verses, general but very broad. In other places, it's really long. It's multiple dozens of verses even, and yet it's the same idea. It's pouring out your heart in real complaint relative to the pain and disappointment of life, asking God and turning God and asking God for help, and doing it in faith. Right? Um, I want to look at— Three of the ways this works in this psalm, because it breaks down in three parts really plainly. The first is, is that you need to lament fully to God. You need to lament fully. Not just in part, not just a little bit. Um, not just relative to the requests you want to make today, but you, you should pour out your heart to God. And not just relative to things that are circumstantial. When you look at the way David laments in this psalm, it's very brief, but it's extremely broad. So he starts out with one of those things that we all struggle with, which is the, the length or the duration of our suffering, right? Um, when is this going to end? Most of us can deal with the suffering we're facing in the moment if we know it's going to end, and it's going to end particularly soon. The idea that the, the, the situation that we're in or the problem that we're facing could be an in, have an indefinite time period is a huge problem. Part of the problem is we don't want it to last forever, but part of it is we just want to know when it's going to end, right? Um, for example, if you're holding your breath, and the average person, if they don't practice holding their breath, holds their breath comfortably for less than 30 seconds, okay? And so let's say you like really, really want to take a breath, and you're at the 25-second mark, and I said, listen, if you make it to 30 seconds, I'll give you $10, right? Most people like tough it out for five more seconds because they know it's going to end in five seconds. But if I say, listen, if you can make it to three and a half minutes, I'll give you $50, they'd let their breath out at 25 seconds. Because they're like, there's no way I'm making three three and a half minutes, so I might as well just quit right now, right? Which makes perfect sense. And part of the problem is, is that God, for the most part, and by the most part, I mean basically always, doesn't answer that question of duration. But it doesn't take away the fact that we have it. And we shouldn't pretend we don't, right? Secondly, he also recognizes that because 
He's having the cement. It's for an indefinite period of time. He hates that. That inherently makes it feel like God isn't nearby. Because how human emotions work is that if somebody isn't acting the way we think that they should act, we feel like there's either something wrong with them or us or that we don't know them. And so whenever God does something that is in a way that we don't understand, which is basically like everything God does, okay, our natural response to that is, is that either there's something wrong with him, there's something wrong with us, or there's something that we don't understand about him. And so it makes it feel like God is distant. He's either distant because there's something wrong with him and he doesn't care, there's something wrong with us and why would he care about us, or there's something that we don't understand or there's something amiss in our relationship such that he must be distant. That feeling of divine distance is a natural phenomenon of hurt and emotion towards other people, towards friends. I mean, there have been times probably that either you've been hurt or you know somebody who's close to you that's been hurt where they sort of drew away from their relationship with you because they were hurt and they assumed you didn't want to hear about it or be part of it. And you're like, are you nuts? Of course I want to do something about it. Of course I want to be part of it. Why didn't you call me? And there's, well, I guess I just didn't think you would want to talk to me. And as they literally say it, you can see that in their mind, they're like, oh, that was stupid. Why wouldn't my friend want to hear from me? Why wouldn't they care? But listen, that is the way the human mind works in that level of lamenting emotion. So it's no wonder that when people are hurt, even if they're believers in Jesus, right, your mind emotionally is still going to work that way. It's going to feel like God is distant. And so the minute you say, how long, O Lord, it's pretty likely you're going to say, are you going to abandon me forever? How long is it going to be until I feel close to you again, right? And then the other stuff that he talks about, the next two things are profoundly internal, right? So he says, how long am I going to have to wrestle with my thoughts day in and day out, right? I really loved um, Bill's prayer when he said, you know, um, the, the word says—the Bible says that you'll give us peace. But— Man, sometimes it feels like it's nothing but crazy town inside my head. There's nothing but turmoil and, and difficulty. And you have to remember that the Bible is the Word of God written all the way through. The Psalms are as much the Word of God written as the book of Romans. The, the fact is, is that we exist experiencing both of those things. There is a peace available to us in God that is real. And <laughs> we live in a world and a mind filled with turmoil. Difficulty, wrestling with our own thoughts, wondering why things are the way they are, especially when we're wondering how long something is going to last and whether or not God is close to us in it, right? Which tends to lead to feelings of disappointment about life and just dealing with the fact that there are things that have already happened in our lives that we wish didn't go that way and we wish had gone another way. That is, we have sorrow in our hearts, which is the next line, right? How long will I have to bear these sorrows in my heart? Right? Why can't my disabled child just not be disabled? Why can't I pray for them to be healed and then get healed and then not have to suffer under that disability during their lives? Why can't, why can't my marriage be better? Why can't I be successful in this thing? Why can't I get rid of this health problem that I've had for years and I have no way or ability to get away from it? Why can't I? Why can't I? Why can't I? Why can't I? Why does life have to be this way? And, and the sorrow of the fact that the things that have already happened cannot be changed. There are some of you that may be young enough or sheltered enough or have not tried anything hard enough in your life that you don't really feel that way about your life. You don't have like profound, serious regrets in your past. That's probably just because you haven't become morally serious enough as a person. If you're more than about 12 years old and you don't have some profound moral regrets in your life, it's just because you haven't found your moral gravity yet. You don't, you don't, you don't understand what's right or wrong deep enough yet or the cost or cause of what you've done to other people to be serious enough morally to have any deep regrets. It's not because you haven't done anything profoundly regrettable. 
right? And the more God gives you a moral gravity, the more you see what the world is really like and how you have affected it and how your behavior has affected it, the more deeply you will have sorrow in your heart about what you didn't do or what you did do or the effects that that's had or the things you wish you could change or the— and you will carry that sorrow in your heart even if you've repented of it, you believe God has forgiven you of it, even though you're trying to do something better, even if you've apologized and tried to make restitution. There's, there's just some things you, you can't fix. Right? And then lastly, he talks about his enemies triumphing over him. Like there's— we all have different le- amounts of enemies and different levels of enemies and different ruthlessness in our enemies, but most of us feel like there's something in our life that can make us insecure in our life. Something that can threaten us. Something that either is hurting us or oppressing us or something that could at any day. Um, this is especially true when, like, people watch the news in a country where people are very divided. Like, I don't know of any racial group or political group that isn't afraid right now. I talk to people of every different ethnicity and racial group. Everybody is concerned the other racial groups would do whatever they wanted to them if they could. Which is probably mostly false, but probably also partly true. And it's—and there's this, like, vague hum of concern and stress in people, right? Especially people who watch a lot of news. Um, that's also true just relative to, like, the competition to get into schools and to get jobs and to get promotions and all kinds of other, like, little difficulties where people are minor— villains in our lives, but yet they still have effects on us, and that leads us to feel insecure and wonder what's going to happen to us and how that's going to work. And then to the point of real enemies that want to like deeply harm us and overcome us, which, I mean, may God bless you that that's not operating in your life at this moment, but that is normal in human experience all over the world in many, many places for people throughout time and history. And it's important to recognize, here's what I want to say about this, about this thing relative to lamenting fully, right? God wants to hear all of that. He wants to hear your complaint against him. He wants to hear that you think that, like, you wish that he would, like, solve this problem so you wouldn't have to wait. He wants to hear that you feel distant from him or you feel like he's distant from you. He, he wants to hear that. He wants to hear about the turmoil of your emotions. He wants to hear about the sorrows of your heart. And he wants to hear about the enemies that you feel like are oppressing and seeking to overcome you. He wants to hear about all of that. And he wants to hear it. It's okay for it to be in the form of a complaint. And it can be within reason. Like even, like complaining. And the good news about God is that God is so emotionally secure and fully psychologically healthy that, um, y- that you can't manipulate him. So there's no sense in complaining to God in such a way as to try to get him to do something, or to try to get him to feel bad for you, or to, like, try to put him in a position where to, to look good, he's got to do what you ask him to do, right? There's all kinds of manipulative prayers Christians try to pray, and none of that's ever going to work. God is completely unmanipulatable, and you can't control him. But here's the thing. The, the same thing that makes God such that you can't control him is the exact thing that makes God the God and that you can't throw him. Like, God's never going to hear you complain and be like, oh no, this person's crazy, right? Or like, or like, oh, l- listen, you're, you're too much. I, like, I can't deal with you, right? Like, there's a certain amount of fear that we have relative to other people that if we behave in a certain way, if we lament fully, like if we're our full, most brokenest selves with those people, it's going to be too much. And they're, they're going to be like, this is too much. Or you're a bad person, or whatever. And you see, the thing that's great about God is, is that he is—you he, can't control him. He's way too 
emotionally independent, and psychologically healthy for you to manipulate him. But the benefit of that is, is that because he is the perfect psychological and moral person, you can't throw him, you can't overwhelm him, you can't like hurt his feelings such that like he gets all defensive. That's never going to happen with God. Right? And so he is capable of receiving infinite human lament and care. Okay. The second thing to look at is um, that you have to appeal to God. Right? The, the verses 3 and 4 are a prayer, right? He says, Look to me and answer, O Lord, my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I've overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. So the thing he does after he laments, kind of briefly and generally, is he prays. He asks the God who is a person who he believes is there and cares about how he feels and what he's experiencing and is not put off by or upset by his complaint. So he doesn't think that in the first two verses where he does all this complaining about the universal general experience of his entire life, he doesn't believe that now that he said that, God is going to be upset at him. He says, God, I've just, I've told you how I feel, what's going on in my life. Now please help me. One of the things that I think is really sad about this is that prayer is sort of the, it's sort of the obvious, simple, and completely undone Christian act relative to lament. It, 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 it boggles my mind as a pastor as I relate to people, but, but it becomes—it makes more sense when I look at my own life relative to this. I can't think of hardly anything in my life that I have such a strange aversion to than prayer. Just like anything is a, is a good enough excuse to distract me from it. Any thought is a good enough thought to— to trail off over here instead of actually attend to God. Like any, any action on my own behalf seems in my own mind like it will do more for me than asking God to help me directly. It's like I'm a, a pastor atheist sometimes, or, or I believe that like I really in my own volition and my own craftiness or my own intelligence, like I can affect my life to, to make it turn out the way I want myself. Relative to things I have no prayer of having any control over. Right? And yet, David, who has—he's a king. He's got a lot of power, right? His first action after he laments generally about his life is he, he calls out to God to help him. Listen, after you call out to God to help you, you can go out and do the stuff that it's your duty to do to try to help things be better. But don't do it before you call out to God and pray and ask for help. That should always be first, right? In Scripture, in a number of places, it says, pray continually. Take all of your prayers and petitions to the Lord. Those are two different verses, not the same verse, right? The Apostle Paul says, I'm, pr I'm praying continually for you, right? It doesn't mean that they're praying for hours and hours and hours a day. What it means is, is that they pray often. Like, it's often they find themselves in a situation where they say, we should ask God for help. And they do. I had a friend, Brian Doms, who worked for the Alpha Course, and um, he, uh, he was kind of weird in how he would pray, because we'd just be talking, and he would just, uh, he would just yell, Lord Jesus. So we'd, like, we'd be walking around, we'd be talking about something, he'd say, Lord Jesus, I want to pray for Nick in this thing. Like, this is, this is difficult. I think his, his heart's on the right track. I know you're with him, Holy Spirit. I know you're working in him. And he would just, like, pray, and I'd just be like— <laughs> And then he'd say, Amen. And then we'd just start, keep the conversation going. He'd be like, you know what I was thinking about that? I was like— 
And I think there's something right about that than trying to like pray for six hours and be like extremely pious. I'm not saying it's bad to pray for six hours. I just think people have a hard time doing that. And I, I think that for a lot of people, um, you should just pray. Just like whenever there's something that matters, just pray for like eight seconds. And let me tell you one more little trick, right? Whenever you feel the slightest emotional inhibition not to pray, pray. Is there anything you're like, maybe I should pray, or maybe I should pray about that. Like, like you're on the phone with somebody, you're like, maybe I should pray for them. Or you're like, you're talking to somebody, they're sharing something different, right? You're like, oh, maybe I should pray for them right now. And you're like, oh, maybe I won't. No, that's when you do. Whenever you feel the slightest inhibition, the only time there would be, I have any, any like, be careful with that, is like, if it's like, like a non-Christian, and your concern is like, you're really good, you, then you just ask them before you just start praying like Brian Doms, right? Just be like, you know, what you're sharing is, is really, I think it's really meaningful. Um, my normal response to this as a Christian is to pray and ask God to help you. Can I just do that? It'll be like five seconds long. And then if they say yes, then pray for them. And if not, go away and pray for them anyway. Right? <laughs> One of the things you need to understand about prayer relative to the relational nature of lament. Remember, because you're praying to someone. Remember, it's very important to understand that emotional pain is not an intellectual issue. So turning to your Christian philosophy or religious ideology to deal with your pain isn't going to work. It'll lead you to losing your faith. In your emotional pain, you reach out to the person of God, not your theology about God. Your theology tells you what the person you're reaching out to is like, but you are reaching out to the person, right? And who we turn to in our troubles reveals a lot about who we think care about us and who we think really has our best interest in mind. Do you believe somebody cares more about you or has your best interest more in mind than Jesus, the risen Christ? Do you think that? And, and I'm not trying to make you feel better. Like, you know, if you don't, you should pray. No, I'm just saying, listen, if you are behaving like that is the case, but you don't believe that, recognize it. Just recognize it. Just say, you know what? That is exactly how I behave. It's fine. And then lament about that. God, why do I do that? Why do I behave this way? Like, I act like you're not even there. Like, you don't even care. Like, I'm, I'm dealing with incredible pain in my life, and I just act like you're far away, and you don't care. Why am I like this? Why do I behave this way? And then <laughs> you cry out to him, God, please help me to care. Does that make sense? One of the things that I think, um, one of the reasons why I think that Americans think that meditation is cool, but prayer is like fuddy-duddy and stupid, is because they're so fundamentally different. People act like they're, sim they're similar, and they're just totally different things. Because, and I'm not knocking meditation. There are Christian forms of meditation. The word meditate is used in Scripture, right? So I'm not saying like that it's bad, but what I'm saying is this, is that part of the beauty of meditation is that you're on your own. You're on your own. No one else is there. The whole point of it is to get alone with yourself and the universe generally. And like, relax yourself and like take emotional like let it out and deal with stuff and do the things and like it's like it's like going to the gym you don't go to the gym and work out and leave and go I'm so disappointed in that gym like nobody ever does that they're like if, you, if you're disappointed with your workouts because you didn't work out hard enough like you didn't do the right exercises you quit you decided you were going to get in the hot tub rather than do your third sets like that was you right and you're like well I'm so you're like no I'm, I'm disappointed in how I behaved in that workout I'm not disappointed with the gym right nobody 
People feel the opposite about prayer. They go to prayer, they pray to God, right? And then they go in and they're like, why didn't God answer me? I didn't feel him leading me. God didn't speak to me. Like the things didn't happen, blah, blah, blah. Here, and here's, here's why that's important. You need to recognize that we are drawn to things where we're on our own because we're so afraid of disappointment and because we feel silly praying to the hidden God. And yet, that is precisely what we have to do and what we're called to do and which, what is the right thing to do. And when we do that, and partly because God is hidden while we do it, for the most part, it functions kind of like the benefits of meditation. Because you, you're never more yourself when you have to stand honestly before an all-knowing, perfectly honest being. And so— the experience of being honest with yourself meditatively, if you really believe you are in the presence of the all-knowing, perfectly honest being, is that you enter into a space where you can't lie and pretend you're somebody else. Which is a little horrifying, but it's also very good, right? And sometimes you'll sense some kind of leading. Sometimes it's just God bringing out your best self what you really should think and feel about your life. And because you're so centered in him, being honest with him, that he's bringing out what he's making in you in terms of godliness, and you know what to do. And it's not God speaking literally, but it's God allowing you to be who you're supposed to be, right? Sometimes it's his intuitional speaking, and sometimes nothing happens that you can discern other than you have in faith spoken to the God who is there that you believe convictionally loves you and cares about you, and you know that giving these things to him is the best thing that you can do. And because in a lot of ways you can forget about the anxiety of it knowing that the sovereign governor of all things holds your needs in his hands relative to what he's doing in the world. And he will answer them to the extent possible, either in changing you helping you, doing things, or working his will in a way that you may not have intended. Okay. So lastly, he ends with exerting faith in God, right? So he doesn't end with complaint. He ends with—because he doesn't necessarily expect anything in particular from God having prayed. He prays. He tells God he desperately needs help. He hopes for God to do something that he can sense and feel, but at the same time, in his prayer, he, he leaves open room for two different approaches. He says, God, please either, like, help me triumph over my enemies so they don't kill me, or give light to my eyes. What does that mean, right? Light to my eyes. Meaning, help me see this in such a way as so that I feel like I have vision. Like, I can see and I can deal with the reality of my life. Even if my enemies are succeeding, even if things are closing in around me, give light to my eyes. Help me see the world the way I need to see it so that I can fight and courage. Right? And then, the la and then when he gets done with that, he says, now I'm going to end with this, right? You are God. You are loving, right? He says, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord for he's been good to me. Right? That's how he ends. The question is, why does he end that way, right? I don't think you can lament fully and in faith without including worship. Why do I say worship? Because otherwise the lament isn't relational and you're not dealing with your emotional question. Right? One of the first reasons why you have to worship 
and you have to pray and you have to lament is that all of those are emotional processes, not rational ones. And I'm not saying that they're irrational. I'm not saying that there's no logic in it. What I'm saying is that's not the emphasis of what you're doing as a human being. You're not a floating brain. Pain is an emotional issue. It often presents itself as an intellectual one if you're a fairly intellectual person, right? Psychologists call that intellectualizing a problem. You convert emotional pain into an intellectual thought so that you can handle it and deal with it because that's how you feel most comfortable as a person. Usually that means you're repressing a lot of your emotions is what that means, right? But what God wants is full emotion, engaged mind, full strength to love him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And where he wants to meet us in our emotional pain, in our disappointment, in our hurt, is in our hearts, in our emotions. And that is not an intellectual question. So the reason why you have to worship is that you don't just say theological truths. You have to love them. You have to rejoice in them. You have to, you have to emotionally give yourself to them. You have to adore God for all that he has, all that he's shown, all that he's done, all that he has spoken and said about himself. And you have to revel in that. Otherwise, you will get swallowed by your sadness. The operative emotion in your life will be your sorrow and your pain rather than the, the greater truth about God. Please forgive me because I cannot think of a better illustration of this than one that's in Lord of the Rings. Um, there's, there's this point in Lord of the Rings where, where Frodo, who's bearing the ring of power in sin and pain, is in the land of Mordor, which is nothing but fumes and deadness. It's just rocks, clouds. It like, if it's a fume to breathe, everything stinks. There's no plants, right? And he's laying on the ground and he's looking up and it's like midnight. And there's this like one moment where the clouds kind of just break a little bit and he sees a star through the clouds. Just one star. And he thinks, all this, from another perspective, is a light and momentary passing. This great war, my own death, the loss of everything beautiful in my life, the breaking down of my body, the loss of my friends, having no hope, that persists up to the clouds. And then beyond them is stars and space and beauty. There is a perspective from which what I'm suffering is only a small and passing thing, right? And that is what worship offers you. It offers you—it doesn't deny in any sense the perspective of pain in the little, like, incubational hole that you're in in the moment. But what it does is it allows you to rise a little bit and to see through the clouds and the fumes and to see that there is a perspective, one that you will participate in fully, that God participates in now, that you can receive by faith, that recognizes that this is a light and momentary thing, bound up in the meaning of the way of the cross, and somehow will lead to the resurrection from the dead, into glorification. That you are walking in the way of Christ, in the name of Christ, belonging to Christ, being shaped to be like Christ, and our God's beloved son and daughter as you do it. Right? And it also keeps you from being enveloped by the narcissism of pain. See, if you don't do something to rise above the pain as you lament, ultimately pain has a kind of narcissism that says, you're the only thing that matters. Right? Because when you are in pain, you, you focus on yourself because you're hurt. Right? The problem is, is that there's a lot of pains that aren't just cuts. I was slaughtering pigs with some guys yesterday, and this guy walks up to me with a bandana on his finger. He's like, yeah, we're going to take off because, you know— Matt cut me to the bone, and I probably should get some stitches. I'm like, 
all right, you should definitely tend to that, like right now. Like the narcissism of pain when you're cut to the bone with a knife, like you should go to the ER, that's great. Get some stitches, right? But the problem is, is that if you experience a deep emotional pain or trauma, that's going to be around for a while while you heal, heal from it. And if you just like lament and lament and lament and lament and lament, and you don't pray and rise in worship, then what's going to happen is, is that that lamenting and lamenting, it points you at you, at you, at you, at you, at you, and this sort of narcissism takes hold all that matters is you, and therefore what you have faith in is you, and your pain is what dictates reality. And so you can wipe away the painting of reality, such as to justify yourself. And it becomes this horrific, ugly thing that's very difficult to heal from. Because if you protect your pain with an incredibly sinful narcissism, then not only are you sinful in your narcissism, but you are keeping yourself from any healing. Those are, those are the two alternatives in pain. And therefore, our laments, rather than grumblings, have to end with worship. Or you won't rise. You won't be healed. You won't sense the love of God. You won't grow. You won't develop as a person. And you might even be taken by the very pain that you are imagining that you're bringing to God. But if you do bring these things to God— and if you worship him in the midst of your pain that you've been entirely honest about, you fully lament, right? And you, ex you express real faith together as one thing, like the death and resurrection are one thing. Then you can experience healing in your hurt, a sense of being known, the peace of Christ that passes understanding, and yet the courage to rise. God, as we pray and um, think about this and— turn our hearts to you. I pray that you'd help us to lament fully in every way, and I pray that you'd also help us to, to trust you and love you fully. Help us to be people that don't repress anything, and yet are not devoured by our sorrows, but are raised up like with that very power that raised Jesus from the dead. In Jesus' name, amen.